I trust you, so don't screw it up. Those were President Barack Obama's instructions to then Deputy Secretary of State William Burns some years ago about how he was to handle secret back-channel talks to negotiate a nuclear deal with the government of Iran. And Burns did his best, flying off on unmarked airplanes to Oman to meet with his Iranian counterparts, and in New York, ducking into service elevators and hotel stairways to avoid the prying eyes of the press. But in the end, Burns delivered, negotiating a landmark agreement with the Iranians for them to sharply constrain their nuclear program in exchange for a gradual lifting of international sanctions. We had achieved our objectives and we diverted a potential path to war, Burns writes in his new memoir, The Back Channel, or at least so he thought. Today, much of Burns's work seems to be going up in smoke. President Trump has backed out of the deal that Burns worked so hard to craft. And as the U.S. imposes new sanctions on the Tehran regime, the Iranians have responded, firing on oil tankers, shooting down a U.S. drone, and vowing to boost its stockpile of low-enriched uranium beyond the limits set in the nuclear pact. What does Burns make of Trump's repudiation of everything he tried so hard to accomplish? And what about the president's dealings with Vladimir Putin's Russia? where Burns once served as ambassador. We'll ask Burns himself, and we'll talk to one of our Yahoo News' colleagues, Alex Nazarian, about his new book, The Best People on President Trump's Cabinet, on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So I think if you were trying to find the opposite of Donald Trump, the anti-Donald Trump, it would be Ambassador William Burns, a guy who has devoted his life to diplomacy, to solving international problems in ways designed to avoid war. And uh, I think it's going to be great to hear his perspective on what's going on right now. So when I was a freshly minted uh, foreign correspondent in the Jerusalem uh, Bureau of Newsweek, we used to go to Amman uh, to get the Arab perspective. And I remember calling the ambassador there, and it was uh, a uh, young Bill Mm -hmm. Burns. And uh, he would invite me in, and he would talk to me about the region and about the peace process. And he he had this extraordinary temperament. And, you know, it's interesting at a time when everything has become so polarized and politicized, Bill Burns was a guy who was thoughtful and nuanced and subtle and stuck to the facts. Um, and I guess I thought, gee, you know, this is this is what all American diplomats are like. Um, <laughs> little did you know. Little did I know. Right, and right. I went back to Washington during the Bush administration and diplomacy was out and military force was in and right. uh, things changed. But, um, 
he's had an extraordinary career, and it's great to have. And his I got to say, you know, one thing really striking about his book, he is painfully honest about the mistakes that he and the U.S. government made over the years, both on the Iraq War, on dealing with Putin's Russia, and even on the nuclear deal that he negotiated. You so wrote that, a book about the run-up to the Iraq War called Hubris. Right. If you were writing a biography of Bill Burns, it could be called Humility. <laughs> Humility. That's that's a yeah. It's a good idea. I don't know how much it would sell, but uh, it's a great idea. But, look, but before we get to that, you know, we got a goo update on the uh, Trump-Russia impeachment watch. We had the, uh, it, what in my view is the complete fiasco uh, this week of Hope Hicks coming in behind closed doors before the House Judiciary Committee. Their first fact witness. The and first it's done, fact why witness. Why not? I mean, okay, so she's not going to say much, which apparently she didn't behind closed doors. Why not bring her in and make her do that publicly? I, exactly. We all remember, you know, Oliver North and, you know, all of the other witnesses in various scandals having to raise their right hand and swear to tell the truth or take the fifth. Yeah. Those are powerful images that have an impact. And this House Judiciary Committee is not having any impact. None at all. Look, you know, I've talked to uh, the people close to Nadler who are handling this and, you know, their view is, well, this is going to help us in the courts because Hopes didn't answer any questions about her time in the White House because the White House lawyer sitting by her side said, no, it's all covered by executive privilege. Now they can go to the courts and argue that, that those executive privilege claims are groundless and she needs to be hauled back. But if the whole whole purpose here is to educate the public about the very serious allegations of misconduct in the Mueller report, uh, which has been out there for a couple of months now, but most people have not read. The only way you're going to do that is have public hearings in which fact witnesses, and if they don't want to answer the questions, refuse to do so, that will highlight it. I think it was a total setback for the House Democrats who are pushing for impeachment. Impeachment is a political process. They need to move the American people on this issue. They are not going to do it with smart legal briefs before the district court in Washington. just as outrageous on Friday, Felix Sater, another key fact witness, the guy who was putting together together the Trump Tower Moscow deal during the presidential campaign is going to be coming before the House Intelligence Committee behind closed doors. Adam Schiff should be ashamed of himself for allowing this to be happening in secret. He started out as chairman of Intelligence Committee saying he was going to have a new era of transparency. And once again, closed door hearings, I I just think... I think we just need to do skullduggery, like right outside Jerry Nadler's office and outside uh, Schiff's uh, Adam office. Schiff's right, office. Right. But look, there is one other thing that we need to talk to before getting into our uh, interviews, and yeah. that is uh, a key development um, in the case of uh, Jamal uh, Khashoggi, the uh, American journalist of Saudi, you know, born in Saudi Arabia, but uh, who was murdered in uh, at the embassy at the Saudi embassy in Turkey. Clearly, the Saudi uh, government and likely the uh, crown prince and de facto leader of Saudi Arabia 
is responsible for it. The UN um, has just released its findings, which point the finger right at MBS. And uh, this is a, an issue that uh, we've devoted a lot of attention to on this podcast. And I think it's an important development, but uh, we'll have to see how the right. Trump administration reacts. But so far, the basic response from the Trump administration about whether MBS was responsible for this, Trump said, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. Right. That's it. Right. And there's some grisly stuff in that UN report that they got access to some of those Turkish transcripts of um, their eavesdropping on what was going on in the Saudi consulate. According to the report, 13 minutes before Khashoggi entered the consulate on October 2nd, two Saudi agents are discussing dismembering the body. Quote, joints will be separated, one says. First time I cut on the ground, if we take plastic bags and cut it into pieces, it will be finished. Those are the Saudis talking about what they were doing uh, or planning to do and to, they, to a, a journalist writing for who they refer to as a as a sacrificial animal. Yeah. Uh, and the last thing I want to say on this is our old fr- friend Adil Jaber, uh, who is now the uh, foreign Saudi minister. foreign Saudi foreign minister. His comments when he was asked about this was, "There's nothing new in in this report." It, it, he well, seems to have learned a lot from the uh, the scandal spinners <laughs> back when he was in Washington. No, n- no new news here. Yeah. It's all old news. Nothing, nothing to see. But look, uh, we've got a uh, a lot to see and talk about on this episode. We're going to start with uh, Alex Nazarian and uh, the best people. So let's get to it. We are now joined by our esteemed Yahoo News colleague, Alex Nazarian, out with his great new book, The Best People, Trump's Cabinet and the Siege on Washington. Welcome to Skullduggery, Alex. Thank you. Am I the first person in the studio to wear a bow tie? Am I the first Skullduggery guest to wear a bow tie? I believe you, you might be. are. We've got to go back and check the and, video. And, um, you know, look, Someone now that video, you've please. sort of set the tone yeah. here, I think Clydeman and I are going to have to start wearing bow ties. <laughs> uh, wait, wait. wait, wait bow ties. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's, is that a clip-on or is that the real? <laughs> I, that You never ask a person person who is wearing a bow tie that's <laughs> okay. a clip-on. All right, let's get serious. Yes. Um, uh, your book, The Best yes. People. There's a lot to talk about here, but I just want to start out with your opening chapter or preface, your interview with Donald Trump. Now, yes. first of all, congrats, because you got an interview with Donald Trump. I didn't when I wrote Russian Roulette. I love the scene because you get ushered into the Oval Office, yes, correct? With and Kellyanne and Sarah Sanders. Right, right. And Trump wants to impress you with his accomplishments yes. as president. Tell us what happened. Well, he summons his secretary, Madeleine Osterhout. He says, bring me my accomplishments. And she brings him a piece of paper and he says, uh, look, uh, this is this year's letter from Kim Jong-un. And it's a, sure enough, it's a photocopied letter with Korean script on it. I assume it really is from Kim Jong-un. I don't know what it said, but uh, it was just an odd moment and sort of telling in its, in the haphazard, totally sort of disordered way that his his domestic policy accomplishments suddenly become a letter from the so North they get, they dictator. give they give Trump the wrong memo yes. you know a letter from but Kim Jong Un instead of the list of his accomplishments but he's probably not supposed to brandish right uh, it also but, makes me wonder I mean does this happen with his one on one meetings with world leaders he asks for a document and they give him the wrong thing <laughs> and he starts spouting off uh, it I mean, seems highly likely that that is not the first okay time but eventually happened. he gets the list yes 
And what happens? He goes through his accomplishments, but then he also gets a list of all of his cabinet members and he reads them. And it's as if he's never seen their names before. You know, Sonny <laughs> Perdue, great. Elaine Chow, terrific. You know, uh, Alex Azar, love him. Essentially, I think he actually used terrific for every single one. And look, you can you could you you would think a president would know at least one thing all of those executive departments had done, and he just clearly didn't, and or he could have at least prepared for that, but th- th- he clearly hadn't, and it was sort of dismaying to see how little he was familiar with this incredible bureaucracy that he runs. It's the federal government, and he seems to not have much concern for it beyond the Oval and his reputation and his prospects. Okay. All right, well, I, I think it'd be worthwhile reminding our listeners because there's been so much turnover. Yes. It's got to be a record, the number of cabinet secretaries he's had and the number who've already left and yep. had to been replaced and the number who are acting yes. secretaries. But let's go through the list a little bit and let's remind uh, our listeners and viewers about who some of these clinkers, yes. as, he called, yes. as he called some of them, are and what they are now known for. By the way, clinkers, I looked that up. There is a word. He meant clunkers. Clinkers is like has to do with like coal or something, right? I yes, looked it up. I, okay, I, but I, let's go through the list. So look, the first to sort of be shown the exit is Mike Flynn. And the cabinet is not exactly defined, but I would say the National Security Advisor is definitely in the cabinet. Mike Flynn lasts twenty one days. Amazingly, he's not the shortest cabinet member. He's not the cabinet member with the shortest term. That's Anthony Scaramucci, the communications director. Probably tech, you know, technically not a cabinet position, but I would say of cabinet rank, he lasts 11 days or 10, depending on how you count his very, very short term in the White House. The first major scandal after Flynn is, is Tom Price, who had been taking private jets and government jets to travel all over the country. He was secretary of HHS. Yes, Health the health secretary, services. who was supposed to be instrumental to the Affordable Care Act repeal because he had been a congressman. He had written his own repeal and replace bill as a member of Congress. And it was to the tune of $340,000 in taxpayer money for these right. for these trips, right? right. Well, First for, class. Right. And for example, a flight from between D.C. and Philly, that was $25,000. And when confronted with that, a spokesperson for the department said he was getting out of Washington to see real Americans. Because who doesn't fly first class? From D.C. to (laughs) to uh, to Philly, yeah. You could take the Amtrak for, I think, a bit less than uh, $25,000. So Price goes, I mean, you know, it's amazing because, you know, who remembers that Tom Price was a member of the cabinet and booted out for a scandal? But go down the list. Scott Pruitt, for example. Scott Pruitt, right. Yeah, classic. So in some ways, Price is the canary in the coal mine. And what people start to realize in the campus, which is what we call the the White House and the Eisenhower Executive Office building next door, all the people there realize that they've been, not all the people, but some of the people charged with looking after the cabinet realize that there's been so much attention paid on normalizing things in the West Wing, they haven't been paying attention to the sort of to the provinces. And those provinces, of course, are the domain of the Pruitts, the Zinkies, the Mnuchins, and then those scandals after Price start to come pretty fast. The next one, I think, is Shulkin, the veterans, the VA secretary. He had taken a trip to Europe with his wife, where he had turned a conference into a vacation. Now, people close to him that I spoke to disputed that that was a Price-level scandal. 
They said he was smeared by people who wanted to privatize the VA. Fine, but he made that smear pretty easy by accepting tickets to Wimbledon, which he did with his wife, which you're not supposed to do as a government official. And I think they flew, I'm not sure if they flew first class or not, but he got in trouble. He eventually was gone. And then, of course, the Pruitt, there's the incredibly extravagant travel, the the security detailed befitting a third world despot. This is Scott Pruitt, yeah. administrator of the EPA. Right. And then just bizarre behavior, yes. like taking a used mattress from the Trump Wanting hotel. to take a used or mattress. Wanting now, to, I yeah. called when I was reporting for us on this, I called the Trump Hotel and I asked if used mattresses were purchasable. They're not, but they're commercially available. Why he wanted one specifically used from the Trump Hotel, we will never know. He did not, Scott Pruitt did not want to talk to me for this book. Imagine this, it's a member of an administration that won on the strength of sort of prosecuting Hillary Clinton's private email server, tends to have plenty of its own officials using private emails, and Scott Pruitt had something like four or five that he was using, private email or or sort of hidden email accounts. So I emailed all those, and uh, it didn't pan out. But I don't know that we'll ever know the mystery of the used mattress. I'm beginning to uh, suspect that your title, The Best People, that there's an element of irony there. I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) I mean, could you have called this the worst people? Well, that wouldn't be especially ironic now, would it? (laughs) (laughs) Aha, so you've admitted irony. This is how we nail people on skullduggery. Now I know how Michael Wolf felt. (laughs) But look, Alex, as kind of amusing as some of these stories are about their incompetence and their bumbling and and their uh, petty corruption or more serious corruption, there's a serious point here, right, which is that These cabinet members presiding over these agencies, they've actually been surprisingly effective, or at least the people below them, in uh, turning back decades worth of policies, implementing uh, an agenda that, you know, is some people consider pretty dangerous. And there's some suggestion in your book there is, like, you know, the Trump administration more generally, there's method to the madness. So talk about which of these cabinet members have been particularly effective at doing this. I'll use yesterday as an example. Yesterday, it looks like the Obama clean power plan had its sort of coup de grace from Andrew Wheeler, the EPA administrator, which means that the effort that Obama had made to transition the economy to renewables, at least in part, was dealt a very severe blow yesterday, sort of a final blow. Did people cover it? Of course people covered it. It just doesn't get as much coverage as, well, for example, the very lurid allegations against Patrick Shanahan, the, the acting DEFSEC, uh, who is no longer acting. He's he had to withdraw because, he had to of, withdraw because of uh, domestic uh, assault allegations surrounding him, his wife, and his son. So, of course, we have to cover, how could we not cover those? But it's, but we only have so much bandwidth and we only have so much attention, both as producers of media and consumers of media. Bannon told me this. Steve st- Bannon. Steve Bannon told me this straight up. Who did up, talk to you. For- who did talk to me and was very generous with his time. Uh, he wasn't the only person I spoke to for this book, but... Uh, I did speak to him. <laughs> Unlike a previous guest of <laughs> yes. uh, Skullduggery, Michael Wolf. relied Wolfe. entirely on Steve Bannon. <laughs> right. Well, uh, but yeah. Steve, Steve Bannon has his version of events, and his is a shock and awe approach to the media on one front allowed for a shock and awe approach to policy on the other. Only by disabling the media could you start going after the Obama policy that they so badly wanted to dismantle. Yeah, you actually have an interesting theory, which is that Bannon, in effect, sent these people in 
to screw up, partly, I mean, this is a little different from what you were just saying, partly as a way of doing what I guess Republicans uh, have been trying to do. They've had like a 50-year-long project almost to discredit government. And his theory was, according to, I think, some people you quote in your book, send these people in to screw up, and that'll help, you know, kind of tear down the administrative state, as he calls it. Right. So you kind of have, it again, several fronts. And I think what's tricky about Trumpism is it does work on several fronts. Some people are there clearly just to break, I guess, stuff. And uh, that in itself discredits government and confirms what Republicans have said for decades now, which is that government is broken. How better to confirm that by breaking it yourself? <laughs> there are also just very quiet operators in departments like education, EPA, Interior, whose names most of us don't know. Right, uh, most of the work gets done at the deputy the de- assistant secretary absolutely. of whatever level anyway. Right. These are not people who are at the Trump Hotel every night. These are not people with two million Twitter followers. They are people who have had long-held goals, and all they needed to do was have that badge to get into the building, and now they're in the building. Now I, they're I, at the cockpit. I've seen you on uh, TV uh, promoting the book in which you talk about how our focus on the chaos of the Trump White House has distracted us from the effectiveness of these people implementing Trumpism. Mm-hmm. Now, which is a deregulatory agenda, tax cuts, all the initiatives that the administration has been pursuing. But uh, isn't a lot of Trumpism just sort of standard Republican orthodoxy, something that any Republican would be implementing? They'd be rolling back a lot of these EPA rules, rolling back a lot of these the for-profit college rules. I mean, this these are something that most Republicans, most of the Republican contenders for president had supported, right? Yes, I absolutely. I don't think Trumpism itself is remarkable. I think the means to Trumpism have been. Uh, Trumpism itself is actually a fairly quotidian Republican program, which totally different from what Trump ran on, which You're is- You're the qu- first skullduggery guest to use the word quotidian, but- and wow. between it that, is fitting that you are also wearing a bow tie. Those two yeah, things seem right. to go together. All right, <laughs> we're interrupting. Go ahead. I think, well, did you guys have uh, Ty Cobb because he would have? He would. Yeah, we've had yeah but Ty he Cobb. wasn't. He was just calling in. We, yeah. No one got to see him. <laughs> right. Well, we should ask if he was wearing a bow. He, I could see him wearing a bow tie or suspenders or both. So it is, but that's not what he ran on. He ran on a populist program. So that's the other issue. The rhetoric of Trumpism has never matched. The program, and that, that's a slightly different point. But yes, it's a totally conventional Republican program. You make another really good point in the book, which uh, I want to highlight, uh, which is you know we, we're talking about the ethical lapses of so many of the people in the Trump administration, and you know you make the point that really this came from the start at the top from Trump himself. And you talk about the press conference just before the inauguration on January in, which, 11th. in which they say the in which the president says he's not going to disinvest from his private company and, uh, you know, will continue to maintain his interest in the Trump organization. The press conference sent two signals. The first was that Trump did not think public service was worth sacrificing whatever gain he stood to make in private enterprise. The second was to the men and women he was then in the midst of recruiting for this administration, they could do the same without fear of consequences, without worrying about how glaringly their desires to hold on to stock options or offshore accounts clashed with Trump's 
promises. Trump was telling them it was okay. So one of the things I heard is when um, the cabinet secretary, Bill McGinley, when he was trying to rein in, who's a stand-up guy, as far as I, as far as my reporting said, a, a Republican operative who just knew the way government was supposed to run. And there was a, a layer of those people on campus who just wanted this to be a conventional Republican administration, the Joe Hagans, the, um, you know, some of the people in John Kelly's staff. So he would try to get Pruitt, McGinley would try to get Pruitt to calm it on the, just the unethical behavior. And Pruitt just wouldn't listen because Pruitt had a direct line to Trump and he believed he was a Trump-like figure who had the same immunity as Trump. And he just didn't. And we know that because he was fired. Last question, because we got to let you go here, but just a kind of a forward-looking question. All administrations, you know, have bumpy starts when it comes to putting together cabinets, their ethical issues, their confirmation battles. Obviously, this administration, it's been uh, much worse. But is there any evidence that going forward, they've learned anything and it could get and they could, you know, smooth things out, things could get better later in this term or if there happens to be a second Trump turn? Any what's the evolution here in terms of their learning about this stuff? I can tell of none. Because the people who are now advancing through higher and higher in the ranks, who are sort of climbing the mountain, shouldn't have been there in the first place. The Shanahan's, right? Shanahan shouldn't have been that high up in this administration. And then he only advanced, of course, to the acting level because Mattis resigned. So you're going to see that in every cabinet now. People leaving natural attrition, causing others even less qualified to rise up. And certainly second term, if he wins... I don't see him really caring about what happens in those provinces that he was intending to in the first place. I think he may well decide they can do whatever they want. He, he's, he's, he's more or less decided that without having won re-election. So I don't see it getting better. The book is The Best People, Trump's ironic Cabinet and, <laughs> and the Siege on Washington from the uh, ever-ironic Alexander Nazarian. Thank you. Oh, it was one of the best reporters in Washington, oh, and that oh, is decidedly... Unironic. That's very kind of you to say. Thanks a lot, Alex. Thank you, guys. We now have with us William Burns, the president of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and one of America's most experienced and decorated diplomats, a 33-year career, ambassador to Jordan, ambassador to Moscow, deputy secretary of state, ambassador. Welcome to Skullduggery. It's great to be with both you guys. And I should have mentioned the author of the new book, The Back Channel, a memoir of American diplomacy in the case for its renewal. Look, the back channel is a fascinating read uh, with an extended account of your back channel negotiations to get the Iranian nuclear deal, which the president has repudiated. And we now have a moment of real tensions in U.S.-Iranian relations as we speak. We've just learned that a U.S. drone was shot down by the Iranians. Are we on a path to war? You know, I think the Iranian attack on the drone, just like the attacks on tankers a few days ago, are reckless and dangerous steps. But they come against a backdrop of the decision you mentioned, Mike, which was President Trump's decision to bail out of the Iranian nuclear agreement a little more than a year ago as well, and then to pursue a policy of maximum pressure untethered to any coherent strategy, at least as far as you can see. And that's really the danger, I think, right now. If you connect maximum pressure 
to unrealistic goals, um, then the Iranians are bound to respond in ways that demonstrate they can inflict damage on us just as we can inflict damage on them. And that creates a very dangerous situation. Does it appear to you that there is some strategy here at all? You know, it seems like there are tensions within the White House itself. You have John Bolton, a very aggressive opponent of the Iranian regime, backed up by Secretary of State Pompeo. And yet a president who clearly doesn't want to get in another war in the Middle East. Right. And that's the incoherent part, which is the most dangerous terrain I always found as a diplomat to be standing on, because when your strategy is inconsistent or incoherent, you got the president talking about, you know, his interest in dialogue with the Iranians and a better nuclear deal. But, you know, what John Bolton has stood for for many years, what I think Secretary Pompeo um, clearly supports is a set of aims that's aimed more at either the capitulation of the Iranian regime or its implosion. I don't think either of those are realistic goals for policy. So what happens when you're standing on that incoherent strategic terrain is your allies start to lose faith and they worry about our judgment, which we've seen over the course of this administration. And your adversaries, in this case Iran, are prone to miscalculation because they're going to assume the worst about our policy, that it's aimed at regime change. The problem is whichever of those goals the administration subscribes to, whether it's the president's you know, affirmed view that you know, we should do a better nuclear deal, we're worse off today as a result of bailing out of a comprehensive nuclear agreement, which did prevent the Iranians from developing a nuclear weapon. And if our goal is regime change, we're worse off today, too, because in a sense, we're playing the game of hardliners in the regime in Tehran, whose grip on power is probably even stronger today. Um, you know, than it was before maximum pressure began. So, Ambassador Burns, if you were in the administration now, if you were at the State Department and advising the Secretary of State, advising the President, acknowledging that perhaps your advice wouldn't be listened to all that much. uh, It's a fair fair (laughs) assumption, I think. uh, But what would your advice be? What is the off-ramp after things have escalated to this level? Because the more escalation there is, the harder it is to to back down. Well, I mean, I think there are two dimensions to it. It's the classic diplomatic challenge of just, as you said, Dan, finding an off-ramp, which means, you know, both sides beginning to communicate with one another, which seems like a novel act these days, you know, basically aimed at trying to not make the situation worse than it is today. So, you know, what you're aiming for is a situation where the Iranians don't take further aggressive steps in the Gulf against shipping, where they don't take further steps away from compliance with the nuclear agreement. And the Trump administration doesn't take further steps to ratchet up pressure against Iran. And at the same time, you know, to try to mobilize or recreate a coalition of countries who share an interest in freedom of navigation in the Gulf. But in order to accomplish all that, there's a second dimension, and that gets back to the question of strategy, because so long as the Iranians, as well as our allies, are convinced that maximum pressure is aimed at regime change or an unrealistic set of goals, it's going to be very hard to accomplish that first off-ramp challenge, too. So you got to get more real about so, what So you are. have more experience negotiating with the Iranians than uh, any diplomat probably over the last couple of decades. In another context in your book, you talk about uh, dealing with uh, these tough regimes. It's more about psychology than geopolitics. I imagine that's the case with Tehran as well. What is the Iranian psychology and how do you take that into account when negotiating out of a crisis like this? 
Well, I mean, it's not a very sentimental leadership to deal with. I mean, in the in the person of the supreme leader, the hard guys, and they're all guys around him in that leadership, you know, they're deeply suspicious of engagement with the United States, and they're deeply disinclined to negotiate under what they see to be pressure. Now, the reality is without building leverage, you're never going to get anywhere in a negotiation. You know, the reason the Iranians started to negotiate seriously on the nuclear issue when we started the secret talks at the beginning of 2013 is as a result of international sanctions. The oil exports had dropped by 50 percent. Value of the currency had dropped by 50 percent. But we were willing to couple those coercive steps with- It was a different kind of maximum pressure with a strategy at the end. Well, it was coercive diplomacy with both parts of that. And the problem, I think, today with the Trump administration's approach is coercive diplomacy that's all about coercion without the diplomacy part. And that's a prescription, I think, for trouble. What's on a personal level? I mean, you work so hard on this uh, nuclear deal, the secret talks flying off in unmarked airplanes to Oman, taking service elevators in New York hotels so nobody sees you, and then to have it completely repudiated um, by the new uh, president. Just what's that like on a personal level? Well, I mean, it's frustrating on a personal level, but far more important than that, I think it's, you know, it's a it's an unforced error in terms of American interests in the world. You know, the nuclear agreement that both the interim one we did after the secret talks and then the comprehensive agreement didn't solve the problem of Iran. Iran still posed lots yeah. of threats to the United States. But what it did do was remove the most imminent risk, you know, an unconstrained Iranian nuclear program. And I think what's deeply unfortunate is here you have a president who's ripped up American compliance with that agreement, you know, unburdened by any sense of the facts in the agreement or anything else. So he can talk about, well, all I'm worried about is, you know, the Iranians not developing a nuclear weapon. Well, you know, this is an agreement which had he retained it and then tried to build upon it, which we knew we were going to have to do. You know, it's not like the comprehensive nuclear you, agreement you, solved everything. You do write in the book, um, we could have done a better job both before and after the comprehensive nuclear agreement was reached of confronting the wider challenge of Iran in the Middle East, a willingness to take more risks against mm. the Assad regime after the Syrian civil war began in 2011 would have sent a strong signal to Iran and cushioned the disquieting effect of the nuclear deal mm-hmm. for the so- Saudis and our other traditional friends. Yeah, we were never never going to remove the deep anxieties that our friends in the Gulf or the Israeli government had about not only our engagement with Iran, but a nuclear agreement. I think we could have, especially in hindsight, since we're all so much smarter after we leave government, um, is that, you know, if you look at the famous red line incident with Syria when, you know, Assad um, had killed 1,400, you know, Syrian civilians with the use of chemical weapons. I thought at the time, I still think that was a moment when had we responded with a punitive military strike, it wouldn't have changed the equation on the ground in Syria. It would not necessarily have started us down a slippery slope toward a massive military intervention in Syria. But I think it would have sent a signal, not just to the Iranians, but to the Israelis and to the Gulf Arabs, that there were circumstances under which we'd use force. But President Obama blinked. President Obama decided that, you know, for reasons I can understand that, um, you know, he, he needed the Congress to help take ownership of this as well. But I think the problem was that in the minds of a lot of people in that region, they saw it just as you described it, Mike, as blinking. And so, again, it wouldn't have eased all the anxieties of all of those very suspicious players in the region that you mentioned about our engagement with Iran. But I think it would have helped 
to defuse a little bit of their angst. Um, do, do you think that the Obama administration could have done a better job selling the deal domestically to Congress? I mean, if you had gotten a treaty it, passed or we were too polarized, that just wasn't in the cards. Yeah, I mean, getting a treaty passed in the U.S. Senate right now in the deeply polarized world in which we work, I think, is sadly virtually impossible. So I, I think the president on down administration made as, as strong a case as you could. I think ironically what's happened since then in President Trump's actions probably reinforced the case for the comprehensive nuclear agreement. You know, it's not a perfect agreement, but perfect is rarely on the menu in diplomacy. It was the best of the available alternatives. Speaking of alternatives, uh, I mentioned the Saudis before. Uh, we have the report just uh, this week, the UN investigation clearly pointing the finger at uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia in the grisly murder of uh, the journalist Jamal Khashoggi. What is the appropriate U.S. response should be the appropriate U.S. response to uh, this kind of behavior? Well, I mean, we need to make a two-way street of our relationship with Saudi Arabia. I'm the last person to argue that we always had it perfectly right in the past. But I think in this instance, by two-way street, what I mean is that, you know, our message to the Saudi leadership, including Mohammed bin Salman, should be you know, your social and economic modernization plans, this vision 2030 he's laid out, we're going to be enthusiastically supportive of it. It's long overdue in Saudi Arabia. You face legitimate external threats from the Iranians or anybody else, we'll have your back. But when you overreach, whether it's internally with the awful murder of Jamal Khashoggi, whom I knew over the years, the mildest critic of that regime among Saudi journalists I knew, and external overreach, like the catastrophe in Yemen today, we ought to push back hard. And I think today we're being far too indulgent. Well, what, is, what does that mean, pushing back hard? Um, well, ending arms sales? Yeah, over the war in Yemen. I think the, you know, the effort on the Hill to cut off arms sales that are connected to the prosecution, the Saudi prosecution of the war in Yemen, is a sensible step. I know the argument is, well, then we're going to you know, disrupt an important relationship for the United States. But the truth is that's an investment in a healthier relationship over time because the Saudis right now are backing themselves in to an awful humanitarian and strategic catastrophe in Yemen. You were, I didn't mention in the introduction, also the Assistant Secretary of State for Near East Affairs. So all of the Mideast was right. your domain. Uh, my, and, most of my gray hair came uh, from. <laughs> you know, and you did so after a career of, uh, of foreign service, diplomacy. It's now effectively been taken over by uh, Jared Kushner with no experience in government uh, before uh, his father-in-law got elected president. What... When you watch Jared Kushner sort of basically running what was your portfolio, mm. what are your thoughts? Well, you know, I'm all for fresh perspectives on issues. It's not like any of us had a pristine record over the last 40 years on the Palestinian-Israeli issue or lots of other issues in the Middle East. Having said that, you know, I think the approach, at least as I understand it, to the famous deal of the century is based on a series of false assumptions. You know, the false assumption that somehow you can deal over and around the Palestinian leadership, that, you know, somehow you can substitute the Gulf Arab states or others for that. The notion, the false assumption that you can substitute economic incentives for political dignity. You know, if, if dollars and cents were the solution to the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, we'd have solved it a long time ago. And third, I think the false assumption that somehow time is on our side. 
And the reality is that even for those of us who are deeply concerned about Israel's long-term self-interest and its security, you know, you play out the demographic reality. Sometime in the next decade or so, Arabs are going to be in the majority in the land that Israel controls from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean. So how do you sustain Israel? as a Jewish democratic state under those circumstances. So, you know, as Israel's closest friend in the world, it seems to me we ought to be a little bit more honest about those false assumptions. And instead, from everything I can see, at least, we're just indulging them. This conference they're planning in Bahrain, what do you make of it? Well, I mean, you know, objectively, this isn't the first time the United States has tried to encourage support for the Palestinian economy. But I think it's based on the premise that somehow that can substitute for the sort of political choices that need to be made to create a two-state solution, which, you know, may be very close to its expiry date anyway. But I think, you know, that's going to be a very sad day when that two-state solution gets buried, not just for Palestinians and their aspirations, and not just for Israelis, for whom I still think it's very much in their interest, but for countries like Jordan, who without a two-state solution, what's going to reemerge, I'm afraid, on the right in Israel, which is increasingly powerful, is this notion that solving the problem means exporting it, you know, across the Jordan River. So so the Jared Kushner conference is a good segue to another conference earlier in your career. Uh, And I want to talk a little bit about your career as a a diplomat. Mm -hmm. And that is a, a, I think, the most sort of the formative period in your career when you were working for uh, the uh, George H.W. Bush administration. I'm talking about the Madrid conference. Mm -hmm. You talk about Secretary Baker and George uh, H.W. Bush and Brent Scowcroft as kind of a model for American diplomacy. Um, And in that case, you had the Gulf War when the United States was in a way at its apex of its military power in the, in the region. That led to the Madrid conference. Talk about that and how it sheds light a little bit on maybe what's not happening now. Sure. I mean, the first thing I'd say is, is that era is not something that you can easily recreate. I mean, this was an era with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the end of the Cold War, as you guys both remember very well because you lived through and reported on it, um, when you know the United States was the singular dominant player in the international landscape. So the Bush 41 administration, Baker and Scowcroft, had huge amount of leverage in the world, which, you know, that any administration doesn't have today. Having said that, I think what set that group of people apart was not just their experience in national security, but first their sense of strategic purpose and discipline. They knew that this unipolar American moment wasn't going to last forever. And so it was a smart time for the United States through effective diplomacy to invest in reshaping rules of the road and alliances. And that's what they did in the reunification of Germany, remaining in NATO, uh, in Desert Storm, where they showed the discipline. Where I remember Baker saying in the afternoon that President Bush decided not to pursue Iraqi forces you know, out of Kuwait all the way to Baghdad, that you know, sometimes the best thing to do in diplomacy is not the easiest one. And that would have been in military terms relatively easy, but they knew they were buying into a huge problem, uh, uh, an Iraq beyond Saddam Hussein. It would break the coalition that had been put together. Alongside strategic purpose, they also had a sense of strategic empathy, which is different than sympathy for your rivals and, you know, other players on the international landscape. They understood Gorbachev's predicament. They didn't dance on the Berlin Wall at the end of the Cold War. And then last but not least, I think, I return to the point about persistence and discipline. 
You mentioned the Madrid Peace Conference. You know, you go to Secretary Baker's office in Houston today. He's got a whole wall outside his, his office filled with cartoons about his nine trips to the Middle East before that conference happened. And most of them poked fun at him. He was Don Quixote. This was never going to happen. But he was determined, and it was a demonstration, I think, of disciplined American power. You know, you look at the people who ended up either in that room in Madrid, like Yitzhak Shamir, or sending representatives like Hafez al-Assad. You know, their enthusiasm was under control for this whole effort. I remember Baker, maybe the last story I'd mentioned, a classic illustration of his discipline and persistence, had a number of meetings with Hafez al-Assad, then the bloody dictator of Syria, the father of the current bloody dictator of Syria. This one meeting in Damascus went on for nine hours straight, longest single meeting I think he'd ever been through. And Hafez al-Assad, I always thought, had a surgically reconstructed bladder because he had this disconcerting habit of sitting motionless in a chair hours on end and drinking endless cups of sweet Arabic tea. And Baker, ever the competitive Texan, was determined to match him. So about four hours into this nine-hour meeting, our ambassador in Damascus, a wonderful diplomat, cracked and walks over to Baker and says, I have an urgent phone call to make. He had urgent business, but it wasn't a phone <laughs> call. And so Baker and Assad then spent the next half an hour, you know, poking fun at undisciplined American diplomats. But, you know, it was Baker's sheer persistence in a way and American power, which wore a lot of those, you know, really difficult to deal with players in the Middle East down and produced a, a significant step forward. Which, of course, led Maybe not directly, but it led to, to the Oslo process. It did. It opened the door to that. And I've always wondered, you know, had you had, you know, had Baker remained Secretary of State and had you had a second Bush 41 term, given Baker's experience, the respect that lots of players in the region had for him, it's at least arguable that you could have made progress, maybe even a Syrian-Israeli deal or, you know, potentially done even more than Oslo did on the Palestinian front. But who knows? Let's talk about a, a subject we talk about often on this podcast, which is Russia. Yeah. You were ambassador to Russia during Vladimir Putin's first tenure as president mm -hmm. and uh, during a period when his hostility towards the West became more and more apparent, mm -hmm. um, his aggressiveness in pursuing his aims, including assassinating uh, Alexander Litvinenko in Moscow, uh, took place. Did we underestimate Vladimir Putin during that time? Yeah, I mean, I think t we we did underestimate um, Putin's tactical agility. I think sometimes we, including me, underestimated Putin as kind of an apostle of payback. Because I've always thought if you mm -hmm. want to understand the smoldering aggressiveness of Vladimir Putin's Russia, it helps to understand the disorder and dysfunction of Boris Yeltsin's Russia, where I served in our embassy first in the early 1990s. And this was a Russia that was flat on its back. I remember, you know, in the first Chechen war in the winter of 1994-95, going to Grozny, the capital of Chechnya, 40 square blocks were leveled in that city as a result of Russian bombardment. And I remember driving in, you'd see the Red Army, which, you know, a few years before was supposed to be able to reach the English Channel in, in a couple of days, looked more like a street gang. I mean, albeit a nuclear armed street gang. That was the Russia that Putin and a lot of the hard guys around him out of the Russian security services not only remembered, but were animated by. 
And they tended to draw a straight line from that experience in the 90s through the color revolutions in Georgia and Ukraine in 2003, 2004, all the way through to what Putin saw was a moment of opportunity in our elections in 2016. He saw polarization and dysfunction in the U.S. political system, and he saw an opportunity to sow further chaos, put his thumb on the scales against Hillary Clinton and in favor of Donald Trump, although I think he was as surprised as President Trump was on election night when he won. But, you know, that's classic Putin. He's not a grand strategist, in my view. He's got a worldview. You've met with Putin on a number of occasions. Just tell us about what it's like talking to Vladimir Putin. Yeah, well, I vividly remember my first meeting with Putin as the newly arrived U.S. ambassador. This is August of 2005. So meetings in the Kremlin, as you guys know. Kremlin is built on a scale that's meant to intimidate, you know, whether it's visitors or especially newly arrived American ambassadors. You walk through these, you know, huge ornate halls down long corridors. You come to the end of one hall and there are these two-story bronze doors and you're kept waiting there for a few minutes just to let all this sink in. Door opens a crack. Out comes President Putin, whom, you know, despite his bare-chested persona, is not that intimidating in the flesh. He's about 5'6 with lifts in his shoes. Um, but he carries himself with a lot of self-assurance. So he comes walking toward me. Before I got a word out of my mouth, he said, you Americans need to listen more. You can't have everything your own way anymore. We can have effective relations, but not just on your terms. My experience, I was vintage Vladimir Putin. Not subtle. It's almost defiantly charmless. But there was a clear message there. And you know, he was determined to chip away at an American-led order to create more space for Russia. And, you know, unfortunately, we've probably given him more space to do that. So, you know, the reality is in dealing with Putin, I think we have to be pretty realistic. We're going to be dealing, at least with Putin's Russia, within a pretty narrow band of possibilities, from the sharply competitive to the nastily adversarial. I do think, however, as important as it is not to give in to Putin's aggressiveness, it's also important not to give up on the Russia that lies beyond Putin. There's a middle class that's emerging in Russia that is not revolutionary in any sense, but is restive about corruption and lots of other issues. And I think Russians are going to chafe at being China's junior partner, just as they chafed at being the junior partner of the United States after the Cold War. So there's space for artful American diplomacy, but it's years out in the future. I want to, so, ask, you, I want to ask you about an incident that took place while you were ambassador. I don't know if it yeah. ever came to your attention, but it's always fascinated me. Mm-hmm. Robert Kraft, the owner of the New England Patriots, right. goes to Moscow, meets with Putin, shows him his <laughs> Super Bowl ring. The Patriots <laughs> had just won one of its uh, Super Bowls. And Putin takes it yeah. and doesn't give it back. He yeah. stole Kraft's <laughs> Super Bowl. Bowl ring. Did that come to your attention as well, ambassador? O- only in retrospect. I wasn't there when this took place, but I remember it was Mr. Kraft or the people around him, I can't remember, sort of asking kind of plaintively, is there a way we can get this back? <laughs> and I remember saying, well, good luck. You know. I mean, so you did not lift a finger to help Kraft get his Super oh, Bowl oh, ring I, back? I, I probably, as a good, dutiful ambassador, raised the issue with people in the Kremlin, but you know, there was not much way of reversing that one, I don't think. I want to ask one last serious question about Russia and Mm. then get to the fun times during the George W. Bush uh, administration Mm. and the run-up to the war in Iraq. Um, Just on Russia, there's always these debates, you know, who lost China, who lost Russia? And I guess one of the questions about our policy towards Russia was uh, how quickly we moved 
uh, to allow some of the uh, former satellite countries, Eastern European countries, the Baltics, to allow them into NATO, uh, and then, of course, Georgia mm-hmm. and Ukraine. And you talked before about how wise it was for uh, James Baker and the others uh, to not say we're not going to dance on uh, mm-hmm. the Soviet Union's grave. But talk about those decisions and if we, if the United States handled them properly, we might have avoided some of the problems we had in the relationship if we had done it differently. Yeah. Well, I'd say two things, Dan. I mean, first, I think the question of who lost Russia, which was, as you guys recall, a big debate in the late 90s, early 2000s, I think is the wrong question in a lot of ways in the sense that, you know, Russia was never ours to lose. You know, Russians needed to remake their society after the end of the communism, the fall of the Soviet Union. And that was bound to be a very complicated, you know, zigzagging process. Did we get some things wrong in terms of, you know, the role that we played in those years? Sure. I mean, you know, Americans are great at giving free advice. I think a lot of the free advice with the best of intentions that Americans gave about remaking, you know, turning Russia's economy into a market system was misguided. But, you know, it's not as if a U.S. Marshall plan was going to work in that sense. Russians always would have resented you know, the kind of intrusiveness that would have come with something like that. I think on the issue of NATO expansion, I'd say the following. We probably did underestimate the sharpness of the Russian reaction to the first couple of waves of NATO expansion, you know, first with Poland and Central and East European states, and then later in the early 2000s with the Baltic states. I don't, especially in hindsight, believe that you know, that those two waves did lethal damage to the U.S.-Russia relationship. Where I do think we made a significant strategic mistake was when I was still ambassador in Russia the spring of 2008, and I write about this in the book, when we kind of left NATO expansion on autopilot and pushed in the spring of 2008 to open the door formally to NATO membership for Ukraine and Georgia. I think that was a mistake first because the Germans and the French and, you know, others of our most important allies in NATO were never going to agree to this. And second, because, you know, I just think this was going to feed Putin's narrative that the U.S. was out to keep Russia down. And it didn't do any big favors for Ukrainians either. So none of that is a justification for Putin's aggression in Ukraine in 2014 or Georgia in the summer of 2008. But it fed his narrative, a narrative that he used quite skillfully with lots of Russians, that you know the Americans have been aiming since the end of the Cold War to keep Russia down. Yeah, you quote uh, George mm-hmm. Kennan, the, uh, one of the great diplomats of you know 20th century calling NATO expansion, quote, the most fateful error of American policy in the entire post-Cold War era. Yeah. And as I said in the book, I mean, I think I have huge respect for Kennan. I think that's probably an overstatement about those first waves of NATO expansion. Because the truth is, when I was sitting in the embassy in Moscow in the early 90s, you know, we argued that we needed to be careful about the Russian reaction to this. But, you know, if I were sitting in the embassy in Warsaw, I would have understood the sense of historical insecurity that Poles feel, too. But where I do think we made a mistake um, and the part where Kennan was right, I think, is pushing for Ukrainian membership in NATO. Right. Let me ask you, because we're running out of time here, yeah. about what clearly was the most uh, difficult period, uh, the, the run-up to the Iraq War and, and then the war in the aftermath. You, at the time, were Assistant Secretary mm-hmm. of State for Near East Affairs. You were a very close advisor to Colin Powell. You did not hide, and nor did uh, Secretary Powell hide, concerns about uh, how we were getting into this uh, war. You wrote memos, you expressed your views, and nevertheless, you say it was uh, essentially your greatest professional Mm -hmm. regret. And you asked the question, why didn't I go to the mat or quit? 
talked about family considerations, loyalty to colleagues, and also this kind of foreign service ethos that you try to change the system from within. But then you go on to say, but part of it was selfish and career-centric. You loved your job and and, uh, you had invested decades into it. That's searingly honest uh, Hmm. to admit something like that. Talk about that process and that process of kind of self-reflection and how you got to that uh, conclusion. Yeah, I mean, and as I say in the book, I'm not sure to this day whether I got that right. I had enormous respect for people who there were three or four State Department colleagues who resigned in the run up to the war in Iraq in 2003. There are probably about two dozen over the Balkans in the 1990s who resigned. Huge respect for people who just believe in good conscience they can't um, carry out a policy with which they fundamentally disagree. I think there you, you can serve honorably in a disciplined service like the diplomatic service, like the U.S. military, if you're honest about your concerns. And we tried to be honest. I write in the book about one memo coming out of the most depressing brainstorming session I remember in three and a half decades in the Foreign Service where Ryan Crocker, a wonderful American diplomat, no slouch at dealing with hard issues in the mm-hmm. Middle East, and I and another terrific diplomat named David Pierce, all of us in the Near East Bureau, sat for several hours and tried to think through for Powell in the first instance all the things that could go wrong after we toppled Saddam Hussein. Because I always believed, my colleagues believed, that in a sense, I don't mean to be dismissive of the military challenge, but the easy part was toppling Saddam Hussein. The hard part was going to come on the day after, given how complex you know, that society is and how unstable it was likely to be. And so you know, we spent several hours. We wrote a memo, which we called The Perfect Storm, which you, know, you read it in retrospect. We got it about half right. You know, we exaggerated some things. We underestimated some others. But it was an honest effort to lay out our concerns at a time when that was not particularly convenient to a lot of people who were the enthusiasts for war. I think In that period, up through the summer of 2002, I think we genuinely believed that the weight of those kind of arguments could at least postpone a conflict until the moment that you had built, you know, a a stronger international coalition, more on the model of Desert Storm, you know, a decade before. But it quickly became clear as you got into the fall of 2002 that, you know, the die had been cast. And then, you know, we moved kind of into our second phase of our efforts was to try to shape if we were going to go to a war, which we felt deeply uneasy about, that at least we could go about it in a way in which we had some company internationally and which in which we were thinking realistically about how you'd manage the politics and the security of post-Saddam Iraq, which meant not listening to the siren song of people like Ahmed Chalabi and others, you know, we've been agitating for all along, people who definitely contained their enthusiasm for the Near East Bureau of the State Department in that time. Right. Ambassador Burns, it is great to have your perspective on American diplomacy at a time that American diplomacy doesn't seem to be in the forefront of this administration is approaching the world. Um, thanks for joining us on Skullduggery. And the book, again, is The Back Channel, A Memoir of American Diplomacy and the Case for Its Renewal. Thanks so much. It's great to be with you guys. Thanks to Ambassador William Burns and Yahoo News' own Alex Nazarian for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. 
And now you can watch the podcast on yahoonews.com, YouTube, and Roku, Saturdays and Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Talk to you soon.